welcome to the New Testament Review. Where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. I'm Laura Robinson. And we are both PhD candidates at Duke University. Today is our second Christmas episode. Hooray! Merry Christmas, Ian! I guess we'll keep in a Christmas tradition, discuss Raymond Brown's The Birth of the Messiah for a second year in a row. Yeah, last year we uh, did the most exciting part of the birth narratives, and we discussed the genealogies. Uh, Everybody loves list of names. That was our little Christmas gift to you. Uh It was actually a fairly popular episode. Well, we also had those delightful jingle bells (laughs) at the beginning. We're going to focus on Luke this time for Christmas. We're going to focus on the census at the beginning of Luke and uh, the story of how Jesus came to be born in Bethlehem according to the Gospel of Luke. Right. So we have to be selective again because uh, there's a lot of Luke in Nativity. So we're not going to talk about the shepherds today. I'm sorry. And we're not going to talk about John the Baptist's birth scene. And we're not going to talk about the presentation of Jesus in the temple. We are focusing in on Luke 2, 1 through 7, which we'll read for you in a bit. But first, why don't we contextualize where we are in the narrative here? Luke 1 opens with the annunciation of the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, Then the story moves on to the annunciation of the birth of Jesus to Mary. These are both angelic announcements. Uh, We then cut back to Zechariah and Elizabeth when their son is born. Uh, The son is John the Baptist. There is a prophetic scene where uh, Zechariah makes a prophecy. And then, continuing the pattern, we move on to the story of the birth of Jesus himself. Right. And this is how we begin Luke 2. In the wider commentary, Raymond Brown makes a big deal out of the parallelism of John the mm-hmm. Baptist and Jesus's annunciations and births, respectively. It's pretty hard to right. miss, really. But we're not focusing so much on that today. We're focusing on mm-hmm. the first seven verses of Luke. So this will be the famous chronological introduction, which we're going to talk about, um, and then Joseph's travel to Bethlehem, and the birth there of Jesus in some sort of room, which we're going to talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. So it's worth noting that this is not Matthew's story. In Matthew, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, 2 verse 1, and there's no mention whatsoever of Nazareth. They then flee to Egypt from Bethlehem with Jesus as a toddler, which is verse 8. And then when they return home in verse 22, Matthew says they can't go back to Bethlehem in Judea because Herod Archelaus, that'll be the son of Herod the Great, is out to get them. So they move instead to Galilee, that is, where Nazareth is. So as far as Matthew knows, Joseph and Mary are very much from Bethlehem. When they try to go home, Matthew assumes that they would be going home to Bethlehem, not right. so in Luke. Yes. Okay, so that's, uh, that's Matthew for the compare and contrast work. Let's go ahead and see how Luke sets this up. In those days, a decree went out from the Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in bands of cloth, and laid him in manger, because there was no place for them in the inn? <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second. 
Okay, so it starts with a bunch of names. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, and David. You've probably heard of David, but we're going to go through who these three people are. Okay, so the first figure that we see at the beginning of this chapter is Augustus. Augustus is the first emperor of Rome. He became emperor of Rome after an extended civil war. He pacified the empire, and he institutes this era of peace called the Pax Romana, and this is a time of calm after extended civil wars. He is called the savior. Because of this, he is commemorated for bringing peace to the world. And the day of his birth is commemorated as a holiday and a day of good news. This is all going to be very relevant in a bit here. Yep. So Quirinius is a more obscure figure. Josephus discusses him in book 18 of the Antiquities of the Jews. He was a governor of the region of Syria. And when Augustus deposed Herod Archelaus, who was Herod the Great's son, in 6 AD, Quirinius started governing Judea as part of Syria. So let me give you that one more time. There's a guy named Herod the Great. He dies in 4 BC. Uh, His son, Herod Archelaus, rules over Judea in particular, as opposed to Galilee, which is ruled by another Herod. It's all very confusing. But his son, Herod Archelaus, rules in Judea until 6 AD. At which point, when he is deposed, Quirinius takes over for Herod Archelaus. If you're familiar with the Herods, you're probably noticing there's a chronological problem here. We'll get back to that. Yeah. And then finally, we have King David. Uh, King David is the legendary king of Israel. He is um, the first of his line, father of Solomon. um, And he is born to Jesse of Bethlehem. So Bethlehem is strongly associated with David. It is considered to be David's city. David is also relevant when we're talking about messianic ideas. One of Jesus' messianic titles in the Gospels is the son of David, right? So So if you want to hear more about that, we're not going to focus on that today. If you want to hear more about that, go listen to our last Christmas episode where we talk about the importance of kingship, and particularly in Matthew's genealogy. Right. Okay. So we try to keep our holiday episodes, and especially our Christmas episode, rather light and fluffy. Right. That said... When we talk about the census, there's a little bit of historical groundwork that needs to be laid for us to be able to recognize that the census is for Luke definitely functioning as a literary device. And it doesn't some- make no sense. No, that's right. <laughs> it's something Luke is introducing for theological purposes. The first problem we run into is when did the census happen? Luke tells us that this was the first census while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, okay? Quirinius takes over in 6 CE after Archelaus is deposed, right? At the same time, we are also told in Luke 1-5 that the beginning of our story happens while Herod is king. With which Matthew agrees, by the way. Right. Herod the Great, though, dies in 4 BCE, right? right? So we have a 12-year difference. So there's a pretty big gap here. With Luke 1.5, we've got Herod the Great is still the king. Herod the Great's successor is Herod Archelaus, and Quirinius is that guy's successor. So we're at two steps remove here. Somehow Luke has got his wires crossed. So what do we think happened here? Uh, the most likely explanation, I would say, is that Herod has a son, Herod Archelaus, 
who it takes over for Herod in 4 BCE and rules until 6 CE when he's deposed. This is when Quirinius takes over as the governor, right? What I think probably happened is Luke got his Herod's crossed, which is extremely common for anybody working in New Testament studies. Perhaps Luke knows that the birth of Jesus happened right around the time Herod died, but he gets tangled on which Herod it was. The most likely explanation for what's going on here is that Luke knows that Jesus was born at the time that Herod stopped reigning out of Jerusalem, right? But he's not sure which Herod it is. It could be the first Herod who ruled in 4 BCE, which fits with chapter 1, or it could be the second Herod, which fits with 6 CE in chapter 2. Uh, it seems like what is happening here is that Luke is depending on Josephus for a source. Uh, Josephus is a historian who writes about the time of the Herods, and Josephus does not always follow chronological order when he's following this. Uh, we're going to do a show about Luke and Josephus at a later date, so stay tuned for that, and we'll get into more detail there. But it looks like this is what's happening. Luke is depending on a historical source that is not quite clear about which Herod is which. Right, there's a okay. scholar named Mason who's pointed out that there are three different times where Luke gets his chronology a little bit wrong, and in every single case, you can see that he is simply reading the sequence of Josephus and not attending to specific chronology. Right. So in all of these places, including the census, it looks like Luke is copying out of Josephus a bit uh, fast and loose. Right. Just to be clear, Luke is actually fairly consistent throughout that Jesus was born roughly under Herod the Great. Um, when you go to look at dating stuff in the baptism, and then of course the references to Herod the Great explicitly in Luke 1, it seems that Luke knows Jesus was born around 4 BC. The problem is the census didn't happen then. And right. there's another problem with the census, or maybe even a bigger one, and that is this is not at all how censuses work. The point of a census right. in antiquity is to figure out how to tax people living in particular areas. It would not be helpful if, to do a census, everyone had to travel back to the home of their ancestor from a thousand years ago. That would not give you the information right. you need. In fact, can you imagine having to do that? Uh, having to figure out yeah. <laughs> whose line you descend from. And of course, everyone, in fact, descends from lots of different lines. And having to travel back, maybe through some matrilineal line, to the home of your ancestor from a thousand years ago. I'd be in Norway. Where would you be, Laura? I would have to, uh, I'd have to start in Ireland and then I'd have to make my way to England. And then if, uh, depending on what side of the family the census was on, I would definitely be spending some time in Germany. I mean, at this point in the story when, you know, the, where Joseph is, is alive, uh, you know, it hasn't been David's city for a while. This is the exile has happened. Um, the place has been repopulated by colonizing forces. Uh, exiles have been deported. Exiles have intermarried. Exiles have come back. No, just the, the long and short of it is even if you can trace your family back to your ancestral line, even if you can do that, even if you do keep track of it, it doesn't give helpful information for the people ruling that area. It, it doesn't, it wouldn't make any sense for me to go to Ireland and register to be counted and then come back here where I actually live, work and pay my rent and pay taxes, right? Exactly. That doesn't make any sense. That's enough for now. We will revisit that when we get to our uh, Luke and Josephus episode. 
Right. Let's just take it moving forward for granted that Luke is doing something by putting yeah. the census here. Right. And if it's not a reflection of a historical situation that people in antiquity would regularly have to go back to their ancestral homeland for the purpose of being counted, then what is actually happening? Right. Uh, and there's a few possibilities. The first is what Raymond Brown calls the solemn beginning. This is the idea that all of the gospel writers want the beginning of Jesus's life to happen at a momentous occasion in history. For Mark, this is the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist shows up as this fulfillment of Isaiah 42. We locate Jesus in time relative to this. For Luke, you know, Luke has a very expansive idea of the gospel and evangelism and is very invested in the idea that Jesus is good news for the whole world. So where does Luke locate Jesus in time? Well, he locates Jesus at a time that is significant for the whole world a empire-wise census. Raymond Brown uh, explores the possibility that there is some irony to the fact that the Roman Empire is acting in such a way to carry out God's purposes. I don't want to milk that too much. Um, I think that we can get into some very counter-imperial readings of this passage that I'm not totally sure how present they are versus how much we want them to be present. It suffices to say this is a momentous moment in Roman history that Luke is constructing, and this is where he locates Jesus in time. Brown, and okay. so I am going to be arguing in a bit, actually, that this is far from being a counter-imperial birth narrative, a relatively right. political, quietist narrative. That doesn't mean that Luke isn't trying to draw any parallels with imperial language or trying to co-opt any of that rhetoric. Right. It certainly is part of the language of being important, of salvation, of things like that. And so perhaps we should imagine the imperial cult and early Christianity both drawing on a common store right. of standard language you use to talk about important people who do things that have effects on your life. So thank you for teeing up point two for me, Ian. Uh, <laughs> the other possibility that Raymond Brown raises is that the census is a literary, literary device to introduce the idea of Jesus as a peaceful savior. So remember back when we were talking about Augustus, that Augustus is hailed for bringing peace, for being the savior of the world. Um, his birth is this day of uh, good news and joy and excitement. All of this language gets used again when the angels show up and they announce the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, right? That Jesus, uh, that there's news that is great joy for all the people, peace to all men on whom his favor rests, uh, good news. All this language starts getting used again. So Brown throws out the possibility that the census is a way to bring Augustus into the conversation, that the census uh, is a way of invoking Roman imperial power and drawing these connections between Jesus and in Augustus, right? That uh, we may think on one hand that the birth of Jesus, that we may think on one hand that Augustus is the savior of the whole world, but it's actually Jesus. And there's definitely a lot of contact points happening with the language that's being used to describe Jesus and the language that's being used to describe uh, Augustus. But I don't know if this quite gets us to why the census. This is very, this is a good explanation for why Augustus is in this passage. I don't know if it's a good reason for why there's a census in this passage. Okay. A third possible explanation, which I'm going to call the political quietist explanation, is right. that Luke is depicting Joseph and Mary, and therefore Jesus, as the kinds of Jews that aren't revolting against Rome. 
And it's important to give a little context here, what this census would have meant to a Jewish audience shortly after 70 AD. I'm not typing, sorry, the nope. cat jumped on the computer. Uh, no worries. So Quirinius's census in 6 CE is what inspired a figure named Judas the Galilean to revolt against Rome. According to Josephus, Judas the Galilean is the founder of the sect that Josephus says was responsible for revolting against Rome again some 65 years later, which, of course, resulted in the destruction of the temple. So, suggests Brown, the census would be strongly associated with Jewish revolts against Rome. And depicting Joseph and Mary as not participating in this revolt, but instead obediently traveling to Bethlehem to get registered, may be contrasting Jesus with Judas. And, as a matter of fact, we have good reason to think this is something the author of Luke is very interested in doing. Pilate, of course, repeatedly reaffirms, three times reaffirms Jesus' political innocence. In Acts, Luke has Gamaliel explicitly contrast Jesus with none other than Judas the Galilean. So in a period after 70, when revolting Jews are something of a concern to Roman readers, it may be significant to depict Joseph and Mary having a particular kind of response to the census. That is, not the response that ultimately led to the complete destruction of the Jewish nation-state. The third option, of course, is that Luke is very invested in portraying Mary and Joseph as law-abiding and submitting to Roman rule. Uh, the fourth option, I think this one's really interesting, if a bit obscure. There is a version of Psalm 87.6 called the Quinta, which I'll define in a second here, that depicts God conducting a census of the people, describing where people are going to be born. The Quinta is a revision of Old Greek Psalms that tends to revise a bit more towards the Hebrew. And the Quinta form of Psalm 87.6 refers to a census and God saying of someone that they will be born there. The thing that Brown throws out is that when we compare this to the Targum, uh, which discusses uh, the possibility of a king being born at a future date, that uh, the Quinta of Psalm 87.6 was being read as a messianic prophecy, as a prediction that a king will be born at a future time, and then this sense of this idea is invoked to, um, to you know, to, to round this out. Um, the problem with this is we don't have a great date for the Quinta version, and it's even a possibility that this is a Christian rereading in light of Luke 2 and not the other way around. Uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting contact point, but it's not, it's, it's not super likely. It's really hard to adjudicate that, but it's possible, yeah. Brown says, that maybe the reason Luke moves the census here is not political quietism or parallels with Augustus, but right. just to get another scriptural fulfillment mm -hmm. in the story of Jesus. Stephen Carlson, an alumnus of Duke University, um, and a, you know, if I ever get a doctorate, a Dr. Bruder, <laughs> published a piece in 2010 called The Accommodations of Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem, interrogating what exactly Luke is envisioning 
in his portrayal of Joseph and Mary's sojourn in Bethlehem. We all, of course, grew up with Christmas pageants where Joseph and Mary go knocking on doors of hotels looking for a room and get shoved into the barn. And then maybe Mm -hmm. the slightly more enlightened among us envisions them going into a cave, perhaps under the influence of the Protoevangelium of James there. But, Stephen Carlson argues, that's probably not what kataluma, the uh, operative term here, is referring to. So what is a kataluma? Uh, it's interesting to note that we haven't, we actually have an in later on in Luke. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it's not the same word there, right? So what, what is a kataluma? So the last two letters of kataluma, the mu and the alpha, these, this is a noun-building suffix that is attached to the word katalusai. Katalusai is um, to untie something, right? To untie your animal, to untie your shoes, uh, just, you know, unbinding. And this is just a way of idiomatically referring to the place where you unbind your animal your shoes whatever it might be uh this is a this is the untying place uh and what this means idiomatically is your lodgings the place where you happen to be staying so you know as opposed to the inn that we have in the good samaritan story that's a paradokeon uh we have in luke 22 11 uh we have a cataluma again this is the room where jesus and his disciples uh celebrate passover it's a large vacant guest room where the jesus can have his last dinner and it comes idiomatically to refer to just vacant rooms in a house so in the case of luke twenty two eleven, where jesus is looking for somewhere to celebrate passover he asks about a kataluma he's now just referring to a empty space where you could house guests or something like that clearly not a hotel room in luke 22 Carlson then goes on to point out that what is exactly in view in the in the verse where it says that Jesus uh, that Mary wraps Jesus and lays him in a manger because there's no room in the Cataluma. It's not necessarily explicit that the problem is that there isn't a place for Mary and Joseph. It's that there's not a place for Jesus. Yep. So um, what Carlson is envisioning here is that there is not a good place to lay down a baby in this guest room. So they use one of the mangers that they use for animals. Right. right? Um, so this is not, this is not something that happens in a barn or a cave. This is something that happens in a home. And the problem is not that there's no indoor space for Mary and Joseph to sleep. It's that there's not a great place for the baby himself. Right. Because it doesn't um, say there's no Cataluma. It says there's not enough space for them in the Cataluma. There isn't a place, a topos to put a baby in the Cataluma. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. in a first-century home where you keep you would keep animals in a lower main room of the house, there would in fact be a place to put a baby. That is a manger. Yeah. The payoff of this, of course, is that Mary and Joseph probably aren't knocking on indoors, but are going to stay in a house of a relative of some kind. Mm-hmm. Now, Carlson takes this even further and. I'm not sure about Laura, but I actually don't follow him all the way here. He thinks this is Joseph's house, and that Joseph Mm -hmm. lives in Jerusalem and has traveled to Nazareth to bring back his fiancée to Bethlehem to marry her there, and then only later returns to Nazareth um, for no apparent reason. 
Carlson's argument rhetorically works by pointing out, exactly as we did earlier, that the census traditionally conceived, that um, that is, a census where you have to go back to your ancestor's home, doesn't make any sense. And so there must yeah. be a better explanation, Carlson says, and that is that Joseph actually lives in Bethlehem. I think there's a bunch of little problems with this. And Carlson addresses some of these, and we're not going to go into all the details here. Carlson is yeah. not the article we're discussing today. But... Joseph returns to their home in verse 39, and Carlson wants to say, well, Bethlehem is called his home in the beginning of Luke 2, and I think that's actually not the case. There's a little sleight of hand there with pronouns. But anyways, uh, we won't. you can go read that article for yourself. I don't buy it. I think pretty clearly yeah. that it, Joseph and Mary live in Nazareth. It's where everything happens previously, and they return to that. And the explicit reason for traveling to Bethlehem is the census is being taken, and that's where Joseph descends from. Yeah, there's there's no, I mean, the narrative explanation in the story is why they're going to Bethlehem, not why they're going to Nazareth, right? right. And you could say that that's the more theologically loaded place. To me, it suggests that there's an element of displacement happening here, right? And if there's exactly. a lot of back and forth between, you know, going to be with Joseph's people and having a wedding and having the baby and all that stuff. And then they go home to Nazareth. It's really surprising that none of this gets into the narrative at all. Like the only thing that is extensively explained is why they're going to Bethlehem, which I think suggests that this is not the norm. I think it's very difficult to get Jesus. I, I think it's very hard to construct a world where Bethlehem is home for any of these characters. And Luke is using these sources to understand uh, the world in which Jesus was born. I, I am sympathetic to Carlson's concern that it's really hard to understand why Luke thinks this census makes sense, right? Because, you know, I, I think I would probably have a hard time selling it if I was going to be taking time off work because I had to go back to Ireland for the census. But also, it's totally possible that Luke is writing about something that happened a good hundred years ago. Yep. And, you know, I don't know if I could describe how censuses worked in North Carolina 100 years ago. I'm sure I couldn't. Yep. Um, so it's, it, it's possible that Luke just doesn't know how censuses work 100 years ago, and he's doing the best he can with the data he has. Yep. It's That's, interesting yeah. that both Luke and Matthew are dealing with a similar set of problems. They right. both seem to know from the Jesus traditions, especially ones they're getting from Mark, that yeah. Jesus is from Nazareth. Right. But there is this prophecy they're dealing with that Jesus is to be born in Bethlehem. And they have different ways of solving this. Matthew has them living in Bethlehem when Jesus is born, fleeing to Egypt, and then not being able to return to Bethlehem, so ending up in Nazareth. And so, therefore, Jesus gets to be a Nazarene. Um, whereas Luke kind of does the opposite. For Luke, yeah. Mary, and I think Joseph are from Nazareth. They travel to Bethlehem for the census. Jesus gets born there, and then they return to their own town in Nazareth. Um, yeah. The place where Jesus would be known as being from. Slightly different approaches, but both getting Jesus to be born in Bethlehem and to be from Nazareth. Even if you can make the census work is a plausibility thing that J Joseph needs to go back to his home, to his his ancestral home. I still don't think you can make it fit Matthew because then you still have Jesus as a toddler uh, it's, you know, the, the killing of the baby boys is, is boys two and under. You still have Jesus as a toddler fleeing 
Bethlehem, apparently, because when they come yep. back, it's they go to Nazareth. Yep. So, yeah, it's well, and, where they... Yeah. And Carlson doesn't even try to explain the chronology no. problems. That's just no. more or less No, given. that's not within the purview of Carlson's article. Carlson no. is just trying to make Luke hang together. Yeah, but, well, but, you know, I, but even the Quirinius inherited the great chronology problem within Luke. That's still... The, right. Uh, Carlson sure. doesn't try to explain. Yeah, doesn't try to figure that out. It's just making the census make sense. Yep. But anyways, I think the thing to take from Carlson is that Jesus wasn't born in a cave. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. No, and and I think think the thing that Carlson draws attention to, which is excellent, that, you know, there cannot be a place to lay a baby without there not being a place for a family, that those are two very different things. I think what um, Carlson has constructed here, that Jesus was not born in a barn, that Jesus was not born in a cave, uh, I, I find this very plausible. Uh, especially because I, I think this is Kenneth Bailey who wrote this, and uh, you know that's take with a grain of salt. But I, I always thought it was he has a point in his book where he argues that if Jesus is in fact in a barn or a cave with his mother, and the shepherds come and visit, and then they leave, that this kind of makes the shepherds out to be real jerks. That <laughs> <laughs> funny point. This Bailey incorporates this article into his own chapter on this passage that if you and I went to go visit a newborn and we found them in an alley somewhere and we were like, oh my gosh, great baby. And then we just left and didn't do anything about the fact that we had lost this homeless mother and her newborn child. You know, thanks to the Shepherds, they were extremely unsavory figures. Uh, and I always thought that was a very funny point. And That's it's, hilarious. It does, yeah, and it adds some credibility to the idea that these are not people who have just found this mother just out in the wild somewhere, you know, that she is in a home and she's being well cared for uh, because the shepherds don't try to intervene in these, (laughs) you know, in in this, in this ongoing atrocity. There's probably Uh, Brown wants to argue that in Luke's nativity, we're probably not seeing a lack of hospitality. We're probably not seeing Jesus in um, necessarily constrained circumstances at least not in the location that he's born. Maybe maybe being traveling is something analogous, but even that sure. seems to be in the interest of getting Jesus to Bethlehem. What we have instead is Jesus born in a house, but they're looking for a place to set the baby down, uh, and they see this very convenient manger. Yeah. No, and that, that does sink a lot of Christmas sermons right there, doesn't it? You know I mean, how, how often is the innkeeper invoked as the big villain of the story? You know, <laughs> that he, uh, he had no room to, you know, make space for... Uh, yeah, I don't. I, re- I remember as a little girl always kind of feeling bad for the innkeeper. Yep. Um, but, you know, now we... Uh-huh. If he didn't have any room, he didn't have any room. Yep. Of course, now we, there is no innkeeper. Don't no. worry about the innkeeper. Don't, <laughs> slander, don't slander the non-existent innkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that does for Christmas episode for us. Uh, Merry Christmas, everyone, to whoever celebrates. And if you don't, have a good uh, winter break. And we'll be back uh, in January with another episode. And maybe next year we'll do the Magi or Shepherds. That's a great idea. uh, What else haven't we done? John the Baptist. Crawling through this book. Yes, exactly. (laughs) In 10 years from now, we'll have finished the entire infancy narratives (laughs) through Raymond Brown. All right. Thanks, Laura. You too, Ian. This is why we don't normally record with cats in the studio. Uh.